1: Now it came to pass in those days, there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus, that all the world should be enrolled. This was the first enrollment made when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to enroll themselves, every one to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and family of David, to enroll himself with Mary, who was betrothed to him, being great with child. And it came to pass, while they were there, the days were fulfilled that she should be delivered.
0: The Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, English Revised Version.
1: And it was now about the sixth hour, and a darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, the sun's light failing, and the veil of the temples was rent in the midst. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said this, he gave up the ghost. And when the centurion saw what was done, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man.
0: The Gospel of Luke, Chapter 23, Verses 44-47, through 47, English Revised Version Hi, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to another Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. I'm here today with R.D. Fierro, author and founder of Crystal Sea Books, and part-time health consultant. He buys the cough drops we keep in the studio for people to use when recording. Today on Anchored by Truth, as we approach Thanksgiving and Christmas, we want to continue our series where we focus on the earthly life and ministry of Jesus, and we want to continue listening to Crystal Sea's epic Christmas poem, The Golden Tree, Komari's Quest. Today, part three of the poem, where the action starts to get a little more intense, Is that a fair statement, R.D.?
2: I think so. For any listeners who weren't able to be with us for our last couple of episodes, we should tell them that The Golden Tree, Komari's Quest, is a poem that's written in the classic style of some old Christmas stories. Well, it's not only written in the style of some of the old classic Christmas stories, but it's also written using the model of some of the old-time movie serials that they used to play uh, on the movies when I was a kid. And when you went to the theater on Saturday afternoons before the movie, they'd always give you the latest installment of a serial, which was basically an ongoing saga. And each episode would end with the heroes and the heroines left in some precarious position. So next week you'd have to come back and plunk down another quarter or two and find out if the hero got out of the previous situation and what new situation they were going to get into. So to get listeners ready for part three of the Golden Tree Komari's quest, listeners who haven't heard the first two parts of the story need to know that this epic is all about a group of small koala bears who went on a quest searching for the lair of their creator who they thought of as the great white koala bear. And this quest led them to the Arctic where they almost died, but they were saved at the very last minute because they came across the golden tree. And the golden tree essentially created a valley in the Arctic where they could live in peace and harmony. And the early bears, of course, had children and grandchildren. And so the bears have been living in this very pleasant valley for several generations. But in the current generation who's living in the valley, the guardian of the tree, a special bear named Komari, is going to start to sense that this Christmas season has brought with it some unexpected danger. And the danger is to their valley, the tree and in fact to their lives
0: all right then so let's continue with the story here's part three of crystal sea's christmas epic poem the golden tree komari's quest
2: she paused a moment longer and watched the evil gloom grow the putrid demented pollution spread across pristine snow The gloom escaped the shadows cast by the eastern hills. With dark, cruelly bent figures, the horizon seemed to fill. Stooped and twisted in aspect, muddled shapes in green and black. Steadily they moved toward the village, the town, and treasure to attack. And in the center of the haze, the deepest, blood-red gleamed. A throbbing, pulsing glow. Pure evil, its obvious theme. Komari was still no longer. She moved as fleet as the wind. A rousing alarm she must sound the warning cry she must send. She rushed to the village center where laid the Qantas horn, brought from the land down under the village of danger to warn. She raised it from its place and caused it to give forth a note that wakened her fellows, all the bears in the great far north. For though it had been many years, since the bears had heard its sound, every koala knew from birth it meant danger to tribe and town. As the bears began to assemble from the greatest to the least, the demonic gloom was closing on the village from the east. And even as the bears with swords and shields arrived, the ghastly, ghostly horde seemed more and more alive. The deep red glow in its center took on a definite shape, a horrid, hooded figure overshadowed by flowing cape. Only its head was clear of the garment that it wore and on its misshapen skull, the horns of demonic lore. The horde sifted and shifted about its master's feet, but always toward the village moved and finally reached its streets. By now the bears had gathered in preparation for the fight and knew with cold, cold certain this would be no silent night. The evil demonic gloom crept toward the place where stood the tree, protected by grim, determined bears, silent, faithful, and free. For a moment the forces were silent, the clear wintry air without sound, Then the demon lord approached the bears and with fierce red eyes glared around.
0: Okay, as the old-timers... Like me. (laughs) Right. Used to say, the plot commences to thicken. Kamari's premonition that danger was coming to the village was spot on. The bears are now face to face with a horde of demons. My guess is that there's a battle brewing. But what I like is how clear the visuals and the images are. It's easy for listeners to see the scene for themselves as the bears and the demons square off. And obviously, you drew part of your inspiration for the story from Ephesians 6.12, where Apostle Paul tells us that our struggle is, quote, not just against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the powers, against the world rulers of this darkness, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places, unquote.
2: Right. Someone once said that the devil's best weapon is to convince people that he doesn't exist. Because if the devil can do that, no one will be on their guard against him. And I think that's why it's such a good idea for mature believers to listen to or read stories to their kids and grandkids, because they can help introduce their children or their grandchildren to the real struggles that life contains. Classically, the Christian is regarded as having three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so mature believers have dealt with those enemies for, well, usually quite a long time. So the mature believers who have dealt with the struggles against the world, the flesh, and the devil, when they sit down and listen to stories like The Golden Tree, Komari's Quest, they can use the scenes that are out of the story to help their children or their grandchildren realize what life might contain for them, and they can help their kids learn how to become overcomers. And, of course, the single best strategy to be an overcomer is to be so familiar with the truth that the lies and the deception that are going to come into their lives becomes immediately identifiable.
0: And, of course, that's why we do Anchored by Truth. To remind people that the Bible, in the words of Psalm 46, is a, quote, very present help in time of trouble, unquote. But people aren't likely to turn to the Bible to help them in times of trouble if they aren't confident that the Bible is reliable and trustworthy. So that's why we focus on using evidence and logic to demonstrate that we have very good reasons for believing that the Bible is the very Word of God.
2: Yes, absolutely. Everybody at some point in their life is going to ask the question, Why am I here? It's one of the most obvious questions that arises from the human experience. But whether people realize it or not, the answer to the question, Why am I here? is inexorably tied to three other questions. First, is there a God? Second, if there is a God, does that God communicate with His people? Or, phrased a little differently, is the Bible the Word of God? And third, if there is a God, and the Bible is His Word, Can I learn about my life, my needs, and my purpose by studying the Bible? Well, of course, here at Anchored by Truth, we think that the answer to all three of those questions is a resounding yes. There is a God. The Bible is the Word of God. And by studying and reading the Bible, we can learn things that are going to help us in not not only understanding why we are here, but in helping us cope with the dangers and with the struggles that we all face as we're going through this life. And so, just as firmly as we are convinced that the Bible is the Word of God, I would just as quickly admit that if people believe that the Bible is just an aggregated collection of fairy tales and myths, they're very unlikely to find the Bible relevant to their lives. And that's why we try to help people understand that there is very good evidence, that there is logic, there is reason behind understanding that the Bible is the Word of God. So if people can get hold of and grasp an awareness of that evidence, it makes it so much easier for them to understand the role that the Bible can play in their life.
0: I noticed that you said, study the Bible, not just read the Bible. What you're observing is that understanding the Bible, confidently and contextually, demands effort, right? I mean, that sort of runs against the old method of letting the Bible fall open and then reading the first verse that came to your attention.
2: Well, I certainly wouldn't try to restrict the Lord's ability to communicate to any particular person at any particular time in any way that He chooses. But frankly, randomly or haphazardly reading selected portions of the Bible isn't likely to help people find a meaningful answer to the question, Why am I here? I am personally fully persuaded that the Lord will reveal Himself to anyone and everyone who seeks to truly know Him. But our relationship with the Lord, who is first and foremost a person, our relationship with the Lord, with that person, is just like every other relationship in our lives. The quality of our relationship with the Lord will be dependent on the quality and quantity of time that we spend with Him. And because the Bible was written in a different era, and a different time, in order to properly understand the Bible, we do need to do some study on the times, the customs, and the cultures that form the Bible setting. And unfortunately today, because so much misinformation circulates around the Bible, in our own culture, we need to go even beyond that, because we need to be aware of some of the contemporary criticisms or accusations that are hurled against the Bible. And so contemporary Christians need to arm themselves by being able to respond to certain common errors or criticisms that are lodged against the Bible.
0: Such is the erroneous assertion that Jesus wasn't a real person, that he didn't live a real life, eat, walk, and sleep like normal human beings, and that despite being fully human, he didn't also demonstrate that he was fully divine. rising out of a stone tomb after being killed by the most powerful empire on the earth at the time. So, that takes us back to our review of some examples that Jesus' earthly existence is confirmed by sources outside the Bible. Last time we took a look at two examples of other ancient historians who mentioned Jesus in their histories, the Roman historian Tacitus and the Jewish historian Josephus. Both are considered reliable historians. Both wrote their histories within a relatively short period after Jesus' earthly life, and both wrote accounts that confirm some of the details in Scripture. Where do you want to start today?
2: Well, let's start by taking a look at another Roman historian, Suetonius. Suetonius was a Roman historian and an analyst of the imperial house under the Emperor Hadrian. And his writings give us some information about how the Emperor Claudius treated the Christians. And we're talking about a period in 41 to 54 AD because that's when Emperor Claudius was the uh, Roman Caesar or the Roman Emperor. And so this is a quote from Suetonius. Because the Jews at Rome caused constant disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, he expelled them from the city of Rome. So Crestus, of course, is Christ. He, in this case, was Claudius and expelled them from the city of Rome. Well, the expulsion of the Christians from the city of Rome, we know, took place in 49 AD. Now, in another work, Suetonius also wrote about the fire which destroyed Rome in 64 AD, and this was under the reign of the Roman emperor Nero. And and, and in order to deflect blame away from himself, Nero blamed the cause of the fire on the Christians. So Suetonius wrote this. Nero inflicted punishment on the Christians, a sect given to a new and mischievous religious belief. So you can see from these quotes from Suetonius that there was a distinct awareness of Jesus that had spread throughout the Roman Empire. and matter of fact, it had gone all the way to the Roman capital less than 20 years after Jesus died. In fact, the awareness of Jesus was so strong that the emperor himself had taken a personal notice of Jesus' followers and had apparently felt the need to either minimize their influence in the capital city, or, even worse, by accusing them outright of crimes of which the Christians weren't innocent. So this just tells you what a profound impact Jesus had on his time and, of course, if Jesus had been a fictional or a mythological figure, there's no way that that kind of uh, story would have spread across the Roman Empire in 20 years. The only explanation for the fact that there was such an awareness of Jesus in the capital city of Rome and among the Roman emperors was that he was a real person. He was the Son of God who had animated a substantial number of people who had begun preaching in his name.
0: And again just to remind everyone of what we mentioned last time, the fact that Roman historians and even Roman emperors would take notice of Jesus is remarkable. It wasn't as if Jesus had led a conquering army that was threatening to lay siege to Rome or even one of his outlying provinces. And Suetonius' observation that the Christians had a new and mischievous religious belief is particularly fascinating. When you think about the pantheon of gods with which the Romans were thoroughly familiar, not only their own gods, but also the Greek gods and the gods of the people they conquered, when you think about the vast variety of religious beliefs with which they were acquainted, what could be considered new and mischievous?
2: Well, of course, many scholars believe that Suetonius was likely referring to the physical resurrection of Jesus. Obviously, the Romans were well familiar with various beliefs of life after death, but none of those belief systems had ever included a person, a flesh and blood man, getting up out of a grave, walking around, talking, eating, and even touching other people after he was crucified. In the Roman culture and in the Roman Empire, that belief was new and novel. Still
0: is. I've never seen it, though I thoroughly believe it happened. Who's next?
2: Well, let's take a look at two sources who wrote about Jesus but for whom we don't have any extant copies of their writings. And these sources, these writers, were Thallus and Phlegon.
0: Well, if there are no existing copies of their manuscripts, how can we know what they wrote?
2: Well, because exactly like today, there were other writers at the time who did read what Thallus and Phlegon wrote, and those writers preserved some of the material that had been written by Thallus and Phlegon and they quoted Thallus and Phlegon in the documents that they themselves were preparing. So it's just like today, when you or I may not have attended a particular event, say a political event, but we can know part of what the speaker said by reading quotes and articles that were written by people who were there. Now, in Thallus's case, part of his histories were preserved by a man named Julius Africanus, who wrote around 221 A.D., and in Phlegon's case, not only did Julius Africanus record some of his material, but so did an early Christian scholar and theologian named Origen, who was an early church scholar and theologian from Africa.
0: So what observation did Julius Africanus preserve from Thalus' writings that pertain to Jesus?
2: Well, let me read a quote from Julius Africanus's writings. On the whole world there pressed a most fearful darkness, and the rocks were rent by an earthquake, and many places in Judea and other districts were thrown down. This darkness, Thallus, in the third book of his history, calls, as it appears to me without reason, an eclipse of the sun. So, Julius Africanus' writing tells us that Thallus had apparently written more than one book of history, but at least in one of his books he took note of the darkness and the earthquake that accompanied Christ's crucifixion. Notice that he mentions that all this happened in Judea. So the darkness and the earthquake that accompanied Christ's crucifixion parallels precisely the account that Matthew gave us in chapter 27 of his gospel.
0: Interesting. Very interesting. And if I remember correctly, Thales' observations are particularly important because many scholars believe he wrote around 52 AD. In fact, he may have been the earliest secular writer to comment on the events surrounding the crucifixion. So, what about Phlegon?
2: Well, let me read three quotes. The first quote is preserved by Julius Africanus, and the second two quotes were preserved by Origen. So, this is the first quote. Phlegon records that in the time of Tiberius Caesar, at full moon, there was a full eclipse of the sun from the sixth to the ninth hour. Okay, that was a quote preserved by Julius Africanus. This is the second quote preserved by Origen. And with regard to the eclipse in the time of Tiberius Caesar, in whose reign Jesus appears to have been crucified, and the great earthquakes which then took place. And here's the third quote. Jesus, while alive, was of no assistance to himself, but that he arose after death and exhibited the marks of his punishment and showed how his hands had been pierced by the nails. So, in these quotes from Phlegon, note that we get several details that are of significance. First, Phlegon confirms the darkness that was also mentioned by Matthew and Thallus. Second, Phlegon confirms that Jesus was crucified, and he even gives us a specific time reference during the reign of Tiberius. And third, Flake unconfirms the post-resurrection appearance of Jesus included the fact that Jesus showed the marks of his crucifixion to those people to whom he appeared.
0: Well, that's even more amazing, because we now know that the secular historians of the 1st and 2nd century AD were not only aware of Jesus' life and ministry, but they were also familiar with many of the details that surrounded his death and resurrection. But that does raise a question. Since Julius Africanus and Origen were both admitted Christians, is it possible that they fabricated the quotes they attributed to Thallus and Phlegon?
2: It's not impossible, but why would they have done that?
0: I think critics would say that they would have fabricated the quotes to make their case for the truth of Christianity stronger.
2: Well, if they had attempted to do that in the time and place in which they wrote, it would have actually had the opposite effect. First, you have to remember that even though copies of the writings from Thallus and Flagon are no longer in existence today, they certainly were in existence at the time that Africanus and Origen wrote and quoted from them. So if they had fabricated quotes or deliberately misquoted Thallus or flagon, their fraud or their errors would have been easily detectable at the time because other people could simply have gone to the source material for themselves and looked them up. Second, Africanus and Origen were writing in a world that was essentially hostile to Christianity. They were writing in the 1st and 2nd centuries A.D. when the Roman Empire and the Roman Emperors were normally opposed to Christianity.
0: That all makes a lot of common sense, and it points to a broader implication of the extra-biblical sources that you've been citing. None of the observers themselves, including Thallus and Phlegon, were friendly to Christianity. So theirs was essentially the observations of hostile witnesses. As such, when they confirm details of the biblical account, their testimony of Jesus' life has even greater weight. If they thought that Jesus was a fraud or a fabrication, it would have been very easy for them just not to mention him. Let's close with prayer. Today, let's listen to a prayer for the one who leads us into a knowledge of truth, the Holy Spirit.
3: A prayer of adoration of the Holy Spirit. Great and mighty God, you are the searcher of men's hearts and the only true joy for their souls. We worship gladly the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, you rule and reign with the Father and the Son. When the Son completed his work and ascended to the Father, You came to be our comforter, instructor, and advocate. You came to take away our spiritual blindness and to make us alive to things of God. At Pentecost, you affirmed your presence in the world and established your dominion in the hearts of those who belong to the Son. Praise be to the one who tells us the truth about Jesus and who strengthens us against the forces of powers of wickedness that attack us in our humanity. Left to ourselves, we could never stand against the wiles of the evil one. But in you, we have victory, for greater are you than Satan who is in the world. You are worthy of exaltation and adoration, for you are fully God and Lord. You regenerate our hearts and bring light to our minds. Since you fully possess all knowledge and wisdom, you are the supreme teacher who not only imparts wisdom but also gives us the capacity to absorb and understand that which you teach. Lord, we pray that we would be sensitive to your leading, and we praise you for being the faithful minister to our souls. Time and time again, you have gone before us to find the path that we should travel. You have never left us, even in those times we have grieved you or resisted your work. Finite man cannot fully comprehend the wondrous relationship that is shared by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We know that the three persons of the Holy Trinity are perfect in unity, holiness, and beauty. We marvel at the grace manifested to us by the Father's sending, the Son's coming, and the Spirit's abiding. Surely such love deserves the response of full dedication to the one who first loved us and we pray that such commitment might mark our lives. We lift our voices in songs of adoration and with the angels cry, Holy, holy, holy is our God and worthy to be praised. We bow before the light of our lives, the Lord of the universe, the Lamb of God. In Christ's precious name, we pray and give thanks, amen.
0: We'd like to remind our audience that a lot of our radio episodes are linked together in series of topics, so if they missed any episodes, or if they just want to hear one again, all these episodes are available on your favorite podcast app. To find them, just search on Anchored by Truth by Crystal Sea Books. We hope you'll be with us next time as we continue our discussion of the reality of Jesus' life. We hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also or listen to the podcast version of this show. Also, we'd like to remind listeners that copies of The Golden Tree, Komari's Quest, are available from our website and on Amazon. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com, where we're, we're not fans, famous, but our boss is.